Welcome to For the Record with Daniel Fontaine, where we focus on civic and urban issues impacting New Westminster and beyond. For the Record puts it on the record, when and where it counts. Now let's begin. On today's uh, podcast, I have a very special guest in Bill Thielman. You will likely recognize that name because Bill Thielman is a well-known political media figure. He's a regular on CKNW on the Mike Smith Show every week on CKNW 980 AM radio. He's also been uh, out there in terms of some uh, referendums. He was successful in fighting a couple of major provincial referendums, and um, he's going to talk a little bit about that on the program today. Bill and I have known each other for a long time. We were the co-hosts of BC Polytalk, very uh, popular uh, podcast uh, that was out a number of years ago. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about some really interesting topics, including densification and some new legislation that the province of British Columbia is bringing in that's going to be bringing in some new 20-story towers to your neighborhood, as well as uh, six plexes and a number of other different um, home types. So we're going to talk about densification, as well as uh, electing Metro Vancouver uh, board directors, whether it's time for us to modernize the way we send people to Metro Vancouver. And uh, Bill also touches on the ward system and whether or not um, uh, the ward system would help improve cities. And we kind of take a bit of a different perspective on that, uh, be interesting little segment to hear about. We'll also talk about the budget season. We know that we're right in the midst right now of all cities uh, developing their budgets, and Vancouver came out with a proposed 7.6% budget increase for next year on top of the double-digit increase from last year. So Bill's uh, got some interesting uh, perspectives and comments, of course, on on that as a political guy. He'll weigh in. We also talk about the next provincial election and uh, the role that cities are going to play in that next election and the fact that um, there could be a, 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 a number of issues at the civic level that end up having a bit of a, uh, an impact on the provincial government. So we're going to talk about that as well as what would a, a for the record uh, podcast be without a discussion on Surrey policing. Bill has a very interesting take in terms of the uh, police, Surrey police versus RCMP debate in Surrey. Um, you're going to want to hear that as well. Um, he did also uh, provide, I thought, a little bit of a, an interesting nugget of information on the Surrey Police, and that's the fact that the recent Vancouver Police Union contract now has um, uh, an impact on the Surrey Policing Service, and you're going to want to find out how that is. so. But before we do that, um, I'm going to turn it over to, a, uh, there was a little segment on Rock 101 CFMI that I appeared on very recently, and it, it was in relation to a fellow by the name of Philip, who appeared on The Price is Right, and he won a trip to the city of New Westminster. Actually, no, he didn't win the trip. He uh, was on the game show and he tried to win the trip to the city of New Westminster and didn't win. But in fact, he did win because he is now actually coming to New Westminster. And the folks at Rock 101, uh, uh, I heard that they were kind of trash talking a little bit of New Westminster. And I gave them a call and said, hey, um, I want to find out why you're trash talking my city. And so we're going to start with that segment and then we're going to turn it over and listen to our interview with Bill Thielman. So enjoy.
Willie in the Morning with Kim and Elise. Uh, all right, if you don't know the story, uh, we'll fill you in, get you caught up to date quick. So it's The Price is Right, Kimmy. It's a TV show, uh, game mm-hmm. show that we've loved forever. Game show. Used to be Bob yeah. Barker, now it's uh, Drew Carey. Yeah. Here's the quote. The Price is Right host and contestant shocked at the value of a trip to New Westminster. So I apologize for the audio quality. I've tried to get a better quality, but it's just off a cell phone, off a TV, and I can't get any better quality of it. But this is how the prize was described on The Price is Right. Hey, George, what do we got for him? How about an amazing trip to beautiful Canada? You and a round trip coach from Los Angeles to Vancouver, Canada. Okay, so it's a trip to New Westminster. You get to stay at the Inn and the Key. Yeah. Uh, the contestant had to guess the price without going over. The contestant guessed uh, $7,280 uh, bucks, And turns out the prize was worth $5,280. Mm-hmm. Drew Carey says... They went over. Yeah, Drew Carey says, that's it? That's, that's, that's all it costs? So, further to the story, City Councilor Daniel Fontaine said, I actually don't consider it actually funny. Some people might be chuckling. But I know the people who live in New Westminster fully appreciate that this is a beautiful tourist destination. Who do we have on the phone with us, Kimmy? Daniel Fontaine. My man. <laughs> hey, good morning. <laughs> okay, first of all, hi to Kim. Hello. Uh, Thank you. Hello there. And uh, Daniel, uh, you're a city councillor for where? For the beautiful uh, city of New Westminster. And I will say this right off the hop, because Kim and I have had this discussion many times. I would not run for city council because I just don't want the grief. Yeah, no, I, I could not stand that. That No, and not so every day. Neither of us would run for office. You have, and I think it should be said, we appreciate you actually taking that position. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's actually a pleasure. I enjoy uh, being out in the community, and it's actually been uh, one year uh, to this month, so it's, uh, it's been fun. Congratulations. How did you, you. Find, how did you find out we were talking about uh, the Price is Right thing? Well, a local uh, friend of mine uh, gave me a call and said, did you hear what they were talking about on 101? And I said, no, I happen to miss it. And they said that um, her term was trash talk in New Westminster. <laughs> so I, in fairness, I have not heard what you guys said, but somebody says they're trash talk in my city. I'm calling you. Let's Hang on. Let's, let's check with Kim Seal. Our resident trash talker. Hey, Kimmy, were we trash talking New Westminster? I I don't recall that. I have lived in two different beautiful places in New Westminster, and I love New West. I think it's a great area. Yeah, so I'm not sure that we were trash talking, although I don't want to say we weren't trash talking New Westminster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I will tell you this. Um, we actually considered, Kim came up with the idea yesterday. Yeah. That we should give away as prizes trips to New Westminster now. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Now, did you hear the latest news? So, no. Philip, who's the contestant, uh, who was on the prices, right, who did not win the prize package, they just announced yesterday Tourism uh, New West has launched a search, hashtag search for Philip campaign. So, <laughs> we are looking for Philip. Philip will be given that package. So, he is apparently oh. going to be hopefully coming to New Westminster. 
and we are going to roll out the red carpet when he arrives. Oh, that's so. That's, See, that's what makes us good Canadians. I like that. That is yeah. Fun. I I, lo- I love that idea. Not that I'm trying to play devil's advocate, but thank you, New Westminster tax paying residents, for paying for this guy from the United States to come up and visit New West. Now, in fairness, <laughs> Willie, I don't believe it's taxpayers that are covering the cost. I believe it's the end of the key and the folks over at Tourism New West. Mm-hmm. So that's even so better. Not, like that's a home yeah. run in in my book, yeah. Daniel. But I, I thought you were. Calling me, Willie. To uh, we were going to chat today about the fact that New Westminsterites should be insulted that the Price is Right called us a trip to Vancouver, and then somehow threw in New Westminster in there. I like personally, that was more insulting to me than anything. Okay, uh, you know, I, we we I was having a discussion with our program director yesterday about this, and he said if you're in San Francisco. And they say, hey, it's a big trip. We're giving somebody a trip to San Francisco to see the Golden Gate Bridge. And, you know, people in San Francisco go, well, that's not a big deal. But for somebody in New York or Texas or in, you know, Vancouver or in New Westminster, you'd go, wow, what a cool trip, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think the same thing in reverse. Somebody down in Los Angeles, California, I don't know where Philip is from, the guy who was playing. But he looked pretty excited about being able to go to New Westminster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, he should be. I mean, <laughs> sell us, sell us on New West. Go ahead. Well, look, sell you us. come to New Westminster. Um, there is. I live in the beautiful neighborhood of Keyside, which is along the the historic uh, and beautiful uh, mighty Fraser River. There's some amazing boardwalk here. If you haven't been in New West in a while, we have the Queensboro side of, of New Westminster with some amazing trails and restaurants. Head to the downtown. We have the uh, one of the, in fact, the oldest downtown in all of British Columbia. It's beautiful got some old heritage buildings and some amazing restaurants and head up the hill to uptown and you've got uh, the massey theater which is i believe one of if not the largest uh, theaters of its kind in a smaller city like ours and there is just an amazing array of museums and, and art galleries and new media galleries and things you can see in the city and trust me philip will have more than six days of activities <laughs> while he's here. And, more than six days. And if you don't know, Philip is the contestant who did not win on The Price is Right. Uh, his trip, he, he, he over oh, yes, but he by, has one, Will. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he over-guessed on The Price. But even Drew Carey said, hey, listen, we haven't given away a trip that costs more than $5,000 in quite some time. He did. Uh, and that's, you know, it's a hell of an expensive trip, but it seemed way bigger, uh, in his mind, the trip to Canada, first of all, Vancouver, mm-hmm. secondly, New <laughs> Westminster, thirdly, but he just seemed like, or he thought it should cost way more than that. And it doesn't. Yes. It doesn't. And I think that was one of the points I made the last few days when I've had a series of media interviews on this is I think that's actually something we should be proud of. You can come to the city of New Westminster and it's actually pretty affordable. So I'm hoping the people of California and the U.S. who are watching the show say, hey, why not uh, come to New West? It's, it's actually quite affordable. And I, I thought that price was uh, very reasonable compared to some of the other stuff that they, they give away on that show. All right. Um, hey, what's on, should we know what's going on with City Council? What's, what's uh, next uh, on your agenda? Anything big coming up? Well, we are meet, well, it's budget season. So we are meeting, uh, pretty much every, every week now to get ready for the preparation of the 2024 budget, which is always, um, makes for long days and very complex discussions. Gotta tell but you. As they say, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're, we're excited about it. That's, I wish we were at that meeting. <laughs> nope. <laughs> that's why you were thanking me for doing public service. Yes, we I are. do all these. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, all right. We'll end with this. Uh, we weren't trash talking New Westminster and I apologize. Oh, good to know. Good yes. To know. Uh, at least I don't think we were. And if we were, I apologize for it. But we'll we'll end with this. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Surrey. I uh, went to North Surrey Senior Secondary. I went to uh, Guilford Park Junior Secondary. And so I, I lived right across the bridge 
from New Westminster. Lovely. Uh, and I'll give you a little joke that Kimmy is far uh, very familiar with. Yes, I am. The joke is, what does what does a kid from Surrey get for Christmas? A kid from I... New Westminster's bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> So get that new Patello Bridge ready. Come on. We're working on it. We're working on it. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to phone, man. That was awesome. Thanks for letting me on. I appreciate it. Rock 101. I'm very pleased to welcome on the For the Record podcast uh, today, Bill Tillman. For many of our listeners today, they're going to recognize that name, Bill Tillman. But Bill, welcome to uh, For the Record. Thank you, Daniel. And as the former co-hosts of the late lamented BC Polytalk, I'm glad that we've teamed up once more. It's amazing how, you know, they say things all come around full circle. Well, we're back at it again, except this time we're on For the Record. And I happen to think that this is an amazing podcast. And not to say that BC uh, Polytalk wasn't, but uh, that was a, a fun run. Uh, but now we're back together again. We get to the opportunity to talk about civic politics and get a chance to uh, discuss that. But as I have with all of my other podcasts, I always start the podcast out with my the toughest question that I pose to all my guests. And it starts with... <laughs> Who is Bill Thielman? Well, there goes your whole half hour. Um, <laughs> I am a uh, strategist consultant. I do government relations, media relations with my company, Westar Communications, which I've been doing for now 25 years. Uh, prior to that, I worked for the BC Federation of Labor as the communication director, assistant to the president. I also spent a six-month leave as the communication director to uh, former BC NDP Premier Glenn Clark. Uh, and so I was there for the pre-election and election period and then went back to work at the Federation. And uh, I'm a, a wine guy, a wine connoisseur, a wine collector. I uh, I love baseball. I love jazz. Uh, I like cooking as well. And uh, I'm enjoying, uh, enjoying my job and being a granddad. Now, Bill, you you are very, very modest because there were a few other things you've done in oh. your career, which you failed to mention, and I'm going to bring up to the attention of our listeners. And that is you ran a, a, a couple of very successful referendum campaigns. You led a couple of those. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. And you also ran for city council in the city of New... In, sorry, city of New Westminster. No, you did not run in city. I, I would have won in Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> With the amount of votes you got in Vancouver, you would have been a city council. I know, I know. I was afraid I was afraid you might mention that. Yes, well, I actually am a, an unusual character uh, in that I've led four successful binding provincial referenda. Uh, the HST with Bill Vanderzam. Um, I, I obviously, being a lifelong New Democrat, am not naturally aligned with uh, former social credit fundamentalist premier, premier but... Um, Bill and I actually worked on several things together, not just the HST, but that was the amazing, the only successful citizens initiative and then led to uh, the downfall of Gordon Campbell, of course, over the imposition of the harmonized sales tax. I've also done three referenda on the proportional representation um, idea, uh, electoral systems referenda, and the last one uh, uh, in 2018 uh, again, we won 61% to 39% to retain our first-past-the-post electoral system. Same percentage, basically, in, in 2009. In 2005, uh, the rules were a bit different, and uh, we still won. But uh, in, the, in that case, they needed a 60% majority to win, and they didn't get it. Um, I think I actually have no problem with the 60%, but the last two, it was a simple majority. So basically what you're telling me is if I ever want to win a, a referendum in the province of British Columbia, I need to, to bring Bill Tillman on board. Hire me as your campaign manager, but don't let me run. 
Uh, Bill, I invited you on the program today because I know you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to um, affairs, uh, civic, as well as provincial. So we're going to delve into um, some areas where there's a bit of overlap, both on the provincial and the civic side. And as you and I both know, the provincial election is fast approaching next year. I think it's going to be sometime in October 2024. And there are a lot of civic issues which are going to, I think... um, overlap and touch on the next provincial election. But I'm going to start on the first one, and that is the um, the, the plethora of, of bills and legislation that's coming forward where the province is, for all intents and purposes, taking over the uh, development, zoning, not zoning, rezoning of cities and communities across British Columbia. Bill, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think that the NDP government is getting it right when it comes to um, effectively uh, mowing the lawn uh, of a lot of cities who uh, for (laughs) many years uh, felt it was their jurisdiction to take care of rezoning? What's your thoughts? Well, I don't agree with the government. I'm a big supporter of David Eby and and Ravi Kale on the housing ministry, but I don't agree with them on what most of what they're doing. I think the intention is good. We obviously have a a housing crisis, but it's an affordable housing crisis. It's not a rezoning crisis. Uh, You know, Daniel, in in the last term of the Vancouver City Council, they had 254 rezoning applications. And uh, you, you you might guess and your listeners might guess, but exactly zero were rejected. None were rejected, 254 to zero. Um, so that doesn't indicate to me that rezoning is a problem, but um, the biggest problem that I have is taking away public hearings from citizens, from taxpayers, from residents, from renters. Everybody who's a resident in your municipality, whatever it might be, has the right to go to city council and say, I don't agree with putting up a 30, 40, 28 story building next to in my neighborhood or next to my home or whatever. And and that's to me a fundamental democratic right. And this legislation would take that away and just say, if it fits the rezoning we've, we've given or the zoning uh, qualifications that we've given in your municipality in that rare area, not up to the city council, but up to the province. Now uh, province provincial decides not municipalities, then too bad you're out of luck. And so I can wake up and find out that there's a 20-story building or whatever size going up next to me, and I have no right to go to city council and object and say, please vote against this, stop this proposal. And that seems to me to be, you know, you think about Mike Harcourt and and many others who fought the Chinatown freeways in the 70s. You think of many other battles, uh, uh, not just in Vancouver, across uh, the country, really, where a municipal government was uh, took a stand against something that was proposed and looked like it was going to go through. And so I don't I don't agree with that. I think it takes a lot away from the municipalities. And you, as a municipal councilor in Westminster, know, uh, you know that you're closest to these issues. You can talk to people in your neighborhoods where this uh, the people would be affected by that. And that's fundamental to me to local democracy. And so I, I I just think this is a big mistake. And I don't think they've thought through the consequences of it. I get that it's there's an urge sense of urgency. I don't think there's any ulterior motive or some, you know, conspiracy or whatever. I just think that they're moving too fast and making a mistake. Bill, you raised a number of interesting points. There's lots to unpack there. But, uh, you know, from my perspective as a city councillor in the city of New Westminster, interestingly, um, while we record this uh, podcast, just this week, there was a, a heritage revitalization agreement project come forward to council. And it was the addition of an infill house um, and the and the preservation of a heritage house. And interestingly, part of the discussion uh, came down to, you know, there were a few folks from the community who did come out and speak and they did, did um, 
speak out in opposition. That's an interesting stat, by the way, on, on Vancouver and how many um, applications actually got denied. I didn't realize it was that low. But what was interesting is when we talked about it, one of the points I raised, and I was making my comments to the folks in the in the audience who had come and spoken is, you know, um, you might have a concern around this being two houses on one lot, but you know what? In about a month or two, there could be six units of housing on this yeah. same piece of property and no ability, absolutely none, for you to come in and to communicate any concerns that you might have on that. So I think you touch on an interesting point. So what what's motivating? I mean, I know at a high level from the government's perspective, they want to build more housing, but surely somebody within the Victoria scene must have said to them that to take this on in an election year is incredibly politically risky um, in terms of how this might manifest itself in communities across the province. What's motivating them to, to move forward with it? Well, I would disagree with you. I'm afraid, Daniel, I don't think it's politically risky at all. I think it's politically advantageous because what most people like we're, we're political science, politics nerds, right? We follow it. We're into it. We're, we're inside baseball. Most people will say the government's doing something about housing. Great. You know, we're not going to have like three day long public hearings with hundreds of people speaking and the, and the results already preordained. That sounds fine to me. So I don't think they are taking a big risk here at all. I think where the rubber will hit the road is is actually down the road a year or two when people wake up and realize they lost their right to have a public hearing, that their city council is, is toothless on some very substantive issues, as you know. And and uh, I mean, you know, you've had big hearings in Westminster. We've had them in, in Vancouver and in Surrey and in, in Nanaimo. Um, you know, to, to remove the zoning situation completely from local councils. Um, I mean, maybe you'll have shorter meetings. So I, mean, I guess that's a positive for some councillors and mayors. But to me, it's, it's a fundamental mistake. But I don't think that it's all that risky. And I don't think people are, you know, voters are well acquainted with all of the ins and outs of how housing and rezoning uh, works. But I mean, you, you mentioned it yourself. Uh, let me just expand on one point. Let's say we have a sixplex, which is proposed under this legislation, now goes in on, let's just say, a, a standard Vancouver city block or New Westminster city block, and there's maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 houses on there. All of a sudden, one goes, and now there's six. So you've got like a 15, 10, 15, 20% increase, depending on how many houses, load on electricity, on sewer, on water, on power, on schools. But that's just one. Let's say there's three six places on six places on one block instead of three houses. So you've now increased it by 21. That is an enormous, enormous and uh, increase. And can our electrical grid, for one thing, even sustain that? Uh, what if everybody in those six plexes gets a, an EV and they have an EV plugged in all day? You know, there, these are I, I think these are consequences that are not. Uh, unintended consequences, but the consequences that the government hasn't thought through, mm. and maybe it will be very slow, maybe it will not be that way, then we get into land lift. How much does the value of the property actually go up, not down? The idea is to create affordable housing, one presumes, but everything we've seen around land lift and, and lots of experts who are much smarter than me on this have clearly indicated that when you start allowing increased zoning it actually increased or increased density it actually increases the value around that particular project or those projects so you know uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and i don't doubt the good intentions whatsoever but i think we might be on the road to hell I have some of my colleagues in New Westminster who are indicating that things like public hearings are 
kind of just antiquated that they end up uh, creating uh, divisive uh, communities and they're they're not uniting in terms of, um, of, of accepting and getting public feedback. How do you respond to people who say that, that, you know, they, that they might say your argument around the fact that all these rezonings got approved, why do we bother with public hearings and why do we need them if they're all going to be approved anyways? Well, I think if nobody was, <clears throat> pardon me, Daniel, if nobody was showing up, if nobody made submissions, if nobody sent in emails and letters as well as appearing in person. And, you know, some of these uh, city hearings are really made as difficult as possible for an ordinary citizen. I mean, Vancouver has had, I won't speak for Westminster, but Vancouver has had hearings at two in the afternoon when most working people or ordinary folks actually have to be at work. So they can't come to city council or wait on a Zoom call or a Teams call or whatever. Um, but like we do know that hundreds and hundreds, thousands cumulatively of people have participated in public hearings in Vancouver and I'm sure in, in almost every other municipality proportionate to their size. So people do care. They do come out and they do send letters and emails. And I don't know anything better than an actual face-to-face -face meeting with those people who have been elected to govern and are seeking the opinions of those who voted uh, or might have voted and, and who are residents and taxpayers. That, that just seems to me the most fundamental part of a democracy is you get to express your opinion uh, in a in a democratic society and express it to the elected officials in a way which you think is appropriate. And I think a public hearing is totally appropriate. I, I'm with you on that, Bill. Uh, I think it, it uh, perhaps there are uh, cases to be made where there could be an exemption, obviously, if, if uh, council agrees. But I, I also fundamentally agree with you in terms of the right for the public to be heard. And I think a public hearing does have a place. And I think that we're going to find perhaps, like you said, a year or two years out, People are going to wake up and suddenly go, I can't believe I can't go to council and talk to council about this project. This is automatic. And perhaps let's tie this up and wrap it up. I think it might be helpful for people who maybe don't know what's actually coming. And I think part of the education portion of this podcast. So the provincial legislation, assuming all of the legislation gets passed and then the regulations come out, we are looking at a potential um, for some sites to have a minimum of four um, uh, units on that site. And depending on the size of the lot, it could be up to six. And then as you hinted or, or alluded to earlier, if you're close to uh, mass or public transit or rapid transit, you could have a tower being approved automatically for up to 20 stories uh, in your neighborhood without any, um, effectively any council oversight. Is that? You got it. That's right. You know, it's uh, wake up one morning and boom. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's uh, to me, it, it's just, you know, and I'll make one more comment on the public hearing piece. If city councils are forbidden by legislation provincially from holding public hearings and nobody wants to hold the public hearings, people will find ways to express their anger and express their resentment and express the fact that they can't hear. Uh, be heard from by by their politicians. So you can you know you can do what you like, but ultimately the, the court of public opinion is where uh, politicians and elect, uh, elections are are decided who who gets to elect. So you know I I would be very wary about taking away public hearings from the public. Switching topics and moving on to a topic that doesn't perhaps get as much attention as the issue of density and densification in cities, and that's uh, Metro Vancouver. We know that Metro Vancouver now is a multi-billion dollar operation. We're looking at 3 million people living in the Lower Mainland. 
we have a real disconnect. Many people feel a real disconnect to Metro Vancouver in terms of the decisions that are being made there that have real impacts in terms of how much taxes people pay when it comes to sewer, water, etc. Um, I'm going to be bringing forward a motion very soon to council asking that we look and encourage Metro Vancouver to do a review of their governance system to perhaps modernize it to bring it into the like the 20th century and look at perhaps electing Metro Vancouver representatives rather than uh, for those who aren't aware um, there's a formula that each city gets a, a, a number of directors that, that get um, automatically appointed from from their councils not directly from the population what's your perspective on that do you think it's time for us to have a look at Metro Vancouver the way we elect our folks or are you happy with the system we've got you mean the feudal system we have? <laughs> it's no, I'm not happy with it. Uh, look, I lived in Toronto for six years, where you elected metro metro councillors for metropolitan Toronto, and I, so you know, I think that is is a is a good thing. I think the more choices and elections people have, and referendum people have, and the initiatives, the better, in my opinion. Uh, there's there's a surfeit of democracy, generally speaking, in our in our institutions. We we need more of it. Um, so I would I would support your your motion if I were um, a New Westminster resident or councillor. Uh, I think that most people don't even realize how important Metro Vancouver is. I don't think they have any idea how much uh, responsibility Metro, Metro Vancouver has for sewer, water, uh, all sorts of environmental issues, other issues, or that it's a big piece of their tax bill. I don't think people even know that's there. So I think it'll be a, a bit of an uphill struggle to to get that kind of attention. But um, look, I mean, I, I'll go I'll go one square either back or forward. We should have a ward system. We should have ward systems so we know who actually is responsible for the brewery district or Kitsilino, uh, wherever you happen to live. I, I I've always supported wards. It's the only city in uh, where BC is the only province without metropolitan areas having representation that's geographically located. Put it that way, as opposed to wards, and. Um, you know, it's we've we've tried and failed in the past. I still support wards. I think if the province is going to take away public hearings and everything else, they might as well just impose wards without any further debate and do it. But I think it would ensure that we had more representation. And within that, uh, we could elect our metro councillors at large and our ward councillors or our riding councillors uh, in individually per riding. Well, I think that's where you and I part ways a little bit in terms of perspective on wards and and not wards. I'm a I'm a huge uh, proponent of the at large system for the cities for the very reason that I think we ended up in the recent Globe and Mail survey of um, most livable cities in Canada. I think British Columbia knocked it out of the park. I think we had like sixty percent of all the most livable cities in Canada were in British Columbia, notwithstanding the fact we only have fourteen percent of the population. So. Part, in my view, part of the reason we we do have very livable cities is we have elected officials who are elected to represent the entire city, not just a particular neighborhood. So decisions are being made at a broader base. But I I, I get you. I think you and I differ on that. But I like the fact that that you um, are are aligned with me in terms of the the metro <laughs> area. And it's an interesting concept of perhaps electing at a at large system at the metro area and perhaps wards locally. But I, I'm still a proponent. I, I believe that I love the fact that I don't just represent the Keyside neighborhood that I'm from, that I actually represent the entire city. And when we all come to council and many decisions, as you know, uh, at Vancouver and New West, a lot of them are unanimous. A lot of things like the mundane stuff that comes to council yeah. is, is yeah. actually, Same, yeah. Not, not unlike the BC legislature, which would surprise some people who don't follow it closely. There's lots of things that pass, but uh, you know, I, I think that the, uh, I mean, 
One of the reasons that I oppose proportional representation is many of the systems actually would elect people across the whole province. That's what we just saw in the Netherlands, where we saw the extreme right, uh, Gert Wilders, the Freedom Party, win the most seats. And it's it's a party list system where you just vote for whatever party and they tally up the votes. And there's no local representation whatsoever. So anyway, we can debate that one another time. But uh, we, we we could. And just in closing this this topic then on Metro Vancouver, do you think we'll ever see it in our lifetime that there is a metro like i mean i'm assuming that it would take a provincial premier or somebody provincial to kind of mandate this i don't think for a moment that metro vancouver the very people who are sitting at metro vancouver who are effectively there with the current system are going to be the ones to propose the changes but do you see at all um uh a bc united or a bc ndp government ever wanting to entertain this do you think there's any any motivation for them to do so I think it's possible. I mean, uh, you know, we, we need somebody who's um, reform minded in terms of, um, you know, increasing the level of, of accountability of elected officials locally. And so I don't, I, you know, I don't think, I mean, it exists in other, many other urban cities, but then again, so does the ward system. So I guess we'll see, but um, hopefully we'll both live a long life and see it. On to the subject of budget season. We are now uh, knee deep, I think we're knee deep, perhaps even kind of uh, waist deep into budget development season. And unlike the city of Vancouver, the city of New West has yet to um, unveil, if you want to call it that, or reveal its proposed tax rate. But you guys are facing in the city of Vancouver, I believe it's a 7.6% proposed tax hike at the moment. Um, I can't imagine that the city of New Westminster will be too far behind. So we're in budget season, Bill. Did you ever think you'd see a day where um, a council in the city of Vancouver passed a budget, double digit uh, tax increase? And then on top of that this year, and we're now talking about a seven, almost 8% tax increase. Um, Bill, I don't see pitchforks at the doors of City Hall. I don't see people upset. Like maybe people are are okay with this. I don't think that's the case. And I would say that what's changed since Ken Sim and ABC Vancouver brought in this massive 10.8% tax increase uh, is inflation and cost of living has just gone crazy. And even even given our cost of living increases, 7.6 is well above the uh, uh, the inflation rate. And the inflation rate is coming down in, in many areas, well, overall and in many areas. So I, I would just, I wouldn't... Um, I wouldn't stop watching for the pitchfork and flaming torches procession to every city hall that has these huge kind of increases at all. I think people are trying to are hunkering down and trying to get by, but I think, you know, once they see some of these increases, which are substantial, I mean, and we're also, we're talking about a right of center government that criticized Kennedy Stewart, the former mayor and, and uh, the, the other colleagues who, some of whom were aligned with him and some of whom weren't, um, for bringing in this, these massive tax increases, and Ken Sim brought one in that was was much bigger. Ten, you know, ten point eight is is unprecedented, and they also surprised the city and and its residents and taxpayers with that because they just suddenly announced it and then had a meeting within a week and passed it before anyone could get very organized. But I I find it kind of astonishing, and I don't I don't think you can play that trick over and over. I think uh, the next budget. Um, hearings and, and and we're already hearing from people in the business community and and some taxpayers saying this is just ridiculous it's way too much and you know you can't I mean one other point when we had a 10.8 percent increase last year you couldn't blame the unions they already had contracts and the and the wage increase was not 10.8 percent nowhere near that so 
Um, you know, Ken Sim said at the time, well, we have to hire hundred police and hundred street nurses and we have to do this. And, and everybody was, they were spending a lot of money, but they weren't spending it in the right place as well. You know, and he said it sucks to do a 10.8% increase, but now he's coming back with 7.6. So it doesn't suck too much, I guess. Um, and I think that's a political problem for them. So you raise a couple of things. So I just want to follow up on and unpack a couple of items you, you mentioned. One was around labor costs. I was going to raise that with you because the biggest chunk of the cost of operating a city is labor. And and everyone knows your pedigree, your background and, and your affiliation with labor in the province. So um, it would perhaps come as a surprise to people that you're talking about being more fiscally conservative, because that typically means you're going to have less ability to pay the labor that you've got at the city, which could potentially lead to labor disruptions and everything else. So, so uh, an interesting point around um, the, the 10.8 and the contracts were already in place. So uh, point taken, but I know that labor costs are, are a large component of, of that. The other piece, um, which I wouldn't mind you commenting on, is just around downloading. We didn't talk about that, but something that the city of Vancouver and even in, in New Westminster, which we've raised, is around provincial and federal downloading onto cities. So there's a lot of stuff that cities are now picking up the cost of. And in Vancouver mm -hmm. in particular, to a certain degree, New Westminster as well, um, they've quantified this in the city of Vancouver. And it is staggering how much you as a Vancouver municipal taxpayer are paying for things that traditionally would have been picked up by the provincial and federal governments. And let's use the example of the 100 mental health nurses that, I mean, I never thought I'd see a day where a city like Vancouver is paying Coastal Health Authority to hire 100 nurses. I just never thought that would happen, and yet it's happening. So is that perhaps what's driving, and perhaps that's why the public has just resigned to the fact that these tax increases are coming in? Well, I wish they'd found the 100 nurses. They've only found about 12 or 14. So that isn't part of the the, the major tax increase piece. But you're absolutely right. Labor costs are, are a big part of it. But, you know, I mean, I, it's weird for a union guy. And a, I have lots of union clients. I, I don't work for QP, just to be clear, in any in any place or in the province. And I have in the distant past, but not at all recently. But, you know, there's a balancing act between increased wages and layoffs and and um, hiring freezes and layoffs are part of the equation so you know i i don't i, I don't know that I, i'm not arguing I, I i support public services i'm not arguing there should be but if i was a right-wing politician i'd be saying to, to my public employees and their unions i would say if you want a big wage increase we're going to lay some people off and you'll get and the ones that are left will get the wage increase and the ones that aren't will be out of work mm -hmm. um and I, but I don't, I don't get that feeling from Ken Sim and ABC or some of the other city councils at all. I'm kind of like, oh well, you know, there, there it goes. But um, uh, you know, to, to quote some of my right wing colleagues, you know, there's only one taxpayer, and and they're getting fed up. And I think that it doesn't matter whether you're city or provincial or federal, people do feel it. And I think this year, especially, people are really feeling it when you see the the six dollar cauliflower and the you know, extremely expensive food that we're seeing in our supermarkets. Even people who are doing well are, are noticing it. So I don't think you can slide by a big tax increase and not expect any blowback from it. I think you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. I think you're I think you're bang on. And I think that we're just on the, the early stages of that uh, potential tax. Uh, I won't call it a revolt. That's overstating it. But a, a tax concern from from uh, rate payers. You know, I've, I've often said over the years, Bill, that when housing prices are going up, people's in value of their estates are going up. They typically have a bit more tolerance for um, higher taxes because they feel like, mm -hmm. generally speaking, they're, they're getting wealthier because the property they're sitting on is going up. 
But if you're, you have a, a, a confluence of events where uh, housing prices are flat, uh, taxes are going up, you know, double digits, inflation is high, cost of groceries are going up, et cetera. At some point, something's going to give. At some point in the next, I would assume, 12 to 18 months, th- there will be people who will say enough is enough. Like we just simply can't oh, yeah. afford this. Well, and and you mentioned the fact that people's property values have uh, gone up significantly, but that also means your taxes have gone up too. It's not just the percentage. If I, and I know because I fought a tax assessment on my own apartment in Vancouver last year, unsuccessfully, I might add, uh, that that uh, you know your taxes go up, and so if you get if your property goes from you know let's just say five hundred thousand to seven hundred fifty thousand in a year or two, your taxes are going to go up. Even if they remain flat in terms of a zero percent increase in the city taxes, your taxes will go up. So when you take the increase in value, presumably at least over a longer period of time, and and add on to that a seven point eight, a ten point ten point eight, whatever percentage, you're looking at a pretty substantial tax increase. A for the record podcast. Uh, about municipal politics wouldn't be the same without a discussion about Surrey police services. So we know <laughs> that um, that has been the topic of the day. And it's been something I've been raising publicly just around the impact that SPS and the transition over to SPS is having on municipal police forces uh, like New Westminster, Port Moody, Delta, Abbotsford, police forces that are not um, RCMP uh, based. In fact, some of the data that we've received recently from our own police chief indicates that we lost, I think, 15 police officers in 2021 and 2022 to SPS. And while there was um, nowhere near that in 2023, I would argue part of that has to do with the fact that nobody knew where SPS was going in 2023. But now we know. Mm-hmm. Now we know there's mm-hmm. clarity around that. So I expect that number is going to go up again. Um What's what's your thoughts in the way that the province has handled this, the way that that Mayor Locke has handled it? And also, if you could really comment and hone in a little bit on the impact on these smaller police forces, because just so you know, I, I brought a motion to council and I asked council to simply ask the solicitor general to perhaps while he's cutting a check for $150 million to Surrey, maybe cut a check to the cities that are also impacted and their police forces. Interestingly, it got voted down last night. So council Mm -hmm. didn't want to do that. But could you comment on that and and the whole SPS transition, the way it's being managed? Yeah, love to hear your perspective. Well, I've got quite a bit of history on this. Uh, So for full disclosure for your listeners, uh, I work with the National Police Federation. I represent them as their government relations consultant. I don't speak on their behalf. So I I wanted to be very clear, but um, look, uh, I helped run a campaign where we collected over 42,000 votes, uh, sorry, signatures of valid voters in the city of Surrey in the, in the uh, nine electoral districts to do a citizens initiative, which is the same process that we use in the HST. And we decided to do it locally, even though you can only do it provincially, but we did it locally. And I said to the government privately, publicly, that here's your opportunity, hold a referendum on Surrey policing two years ago, before the municipal election, people want to have it. It would give clarity. It takes the issue out of uh, the, uh, the elections. And and I said, and if you don't do that, the municipal election will be the referendum. Well, they didn't do that. Uh, they weren't interested in, in having a referendum. And I can tell you, we would have won that referendum. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I have some experience in that. Uh, and then the election became the referenda, and Brenda Locke and her Surrey Connect team won the majority. And then they had a vote again, and even one of the opposition members voted with them to say, we want to keep the RCMP. 
And both the premier and the minister, Mike Farnworth, uh, the minister, David Eby, the premier, said it's up to Surrey to decide. And then they decided, no, it isn't. It's up to us to decide. So, you know, it, it's been it's been a, a, a you know, a, a political disaster, in my view, all the way along. And uh, I mean, I talked to a lot of people about this. I talked to a lot of media people and I said, here's just one fact. Every municipality of the size of Surrey or around that size gets 10 percent of their operating budget from the federal government as a subsidy or as a grant. 10%. So that for Surrey, probably over 10 years is $200 million. That's more than the $150 million that was promised to them over five years. It's an enormous amount. And once you move away from RCMP jurisdiction, you can't go back and get it, even if you decide to change the RCMP. So just that alone, forget about the higher wages, forget about two police officers per car, forget about the fact that you have to set up a gun range, an IT system, all, I mean, there's the, the, the logistics uh, of setting a, a separate police force up are enormous. And so, and I frankly, Daniel, I'm mystified. I do not understand why the government has made this decision. It makes no sense to me. A government, a local government with a mandate clearly indicated, a majority of council clearly indicated they want to stick with the RCMP. There is no public safety crisis whatsoever. And I think it will be, uh, I, the only thing I would say is I think it'll be years before the SPS possibly takes over as police of jurisdiction because um, they're having a hard time just like everybody else recruiting. And they picked off some of the lower hanging uh, members, perhaps from Westminster, the transit authority, 40% of VPD officers live in Surrey. Um, and yet, you know, uh, and now Vancouver, the VPD just got a big uh, new contract, which by the way, has a, a Me Too clause, the Surrey Police Union negotiated a Me Too clause. So whatever Vancouver gets, instead of the 3% that Surrey had negotiated, they'll get the 7, 8%, 9%, I think it is, that Vancouver has got. So um, there's no, another... I, I, I was shocked when you told me that. I did yeah. not know that uh, the Surrey Police Union had the Me Too clause. And that that's a huge game changer in terms of what Vancouver just negotiated. I think it's $122,000 for a starting mm -hmm. kind of constable. Like yeah. Something, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so, I mean, so we have a competition, which, you know, from a union perspective, I, like, you know, hats off to the Surrey Police <laughs> Union and the, v, and the VPU. I mean, hats off to them. But from a, you know, from a practical perspective, this is a very, very big increase. And it's on, you know, if your listeners want to look at page 39 of the Surrey Police Union contract, it's right there in black and white print online. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, anyway, I, I don't know what the end of this is. Surrey has a court case, as you know. They will go to court and argue on a couple different grounds that the province didn't have the right to overturn their decision and to impose the Surrey Police Service on them. But, uh, you know, Mike Farnworth has been publicly chastising Brenda Locke and Surrey and saying, you're not cooperating, etc. Well, they got elected to do something different. Why would they? Why would they do that now? I mean, it's, you know, and they've got a court case saying you're wrong. So why would well, they, you know, now I agree that they have to do certain things and, and they have to do their due diligence and they have their fiduciary duties, but to, you know, it's not the city council's job to create a fiscal plan, which doesn't exist. A feasibility study never happened. And it, and yet the Surrey police service was approved by the provincial government. So I'm frankly mystified. I, I, all good points. And I, I think uh, Bill, that mayor Brenda Locke and, and her team, my uh, thought is they're going to lose in the courts, but they're going to win in the court of public opinion. Cause I think that the Surrey taxpayers, when um, this, cause I can, 
only imagine what the if we think that 10.8% looked like a lot in the city of Vancouver last year in terms of of uh, municipal taxes, I can only imagine the budget uh, uh, making process right now in Surrey is going to likely be double digits. And I'm talking significant double digits coming forward. And you know that Mayor Locke is going to say, this is not our tax increase. This is the tax increase from the provincial government. This has been imposed upon us. And it's a Good segue, I think, to um, um, heading into the next provincial election, because I think a lot of these issues like the density that we talked about earlier, the Surrey Police Service, I've never seen that um, just, again, a confluence of all these events that are happening leading up to a provincial election where basically it's assumed that the NDP will just automatically win. And we could, you and I can talk to Premier Adrian Dix about what that looked like um, <laughs> when we went into, uh, and, and Adrian is a friend of both of ours, so I'm sure he would certainly, mm. he heard this, but um, so we're going into a provincial election where there's an assumption that the NDP are going to win, yet you're seeing these pockets, whether it's Nanaimo, Cowichan, the mayor out, you know, out speaking in Penticton, in Surrey, in other communities where um, there's this little bit of like you could just see it kind of coming under the surface. And I'd love to hear your perspective in the next 12 months. Do you think that municipal governments, city governments could play a, a, a bigger role in terms of the outcome of the next uh, provincial election? Well, I do. And I, I, I'm not one of those people who presume, uh, uh, despite their political backgrounds, whether they're BC United, ex-BC Liberal, or they're BC Conservative or BC NDP, I'm not one of those people who presume the NDP are going to win. The opposition is split. There's no question about that at the moment. And I don't see some conspiracy theorists on the NDP side think, oh, John Rustead and the BC Conservatives are going to fold into the BC United Party. Not a chance. That's not going to happen. Um, what the question to me is, are we in a 1991 situation where the Liberals under Gordon Wilson arose from nowhere to become the opposition and the Social Credit Party was was turned into a really a rump group and then disappeared? I don't know that that's the case with BC United at all. I think Kevin Falcon is an experienced politician. Uh, they have all the resources that BC Conservatives don't have. But if we have a split opposition that doesn't mean the ndp retain all the seats they've won in the fraser valley in the in the richmond area in langley and chilliwack and abbotsford and it's you know it's a real possibility that bc conservatives leapfrog uh and come into first place in some of those writings uh over the bc ndp who hold them now and the bc united who used to hold them and then we've got a really strange situation so you know i think um, premier eb has once again i was at the ndp convention he once again ruled out an early election um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of different issues that whether it's inflation, uh, affordability, housing, health care, um, access to a family doctor that aren't going the NDP's way. They're trying very hard. I And, you know, like I'm I'm a diehard NDP or I'll be supporting them in the next election. But if I was in the premier's office or if I was in the NDP headquarters, I'd be pretty nervous right now. I 100% agree with you. And there aren't a lot of analysts who uh, have taken that position that you have. And I, I listen to a lot of the political pundits and it's almost like why even bother having the election? This is an, an, <laughs> an automatic win. And I've lived in this province like you long enough to know that, um, you know, all of us pretty much went into the election when Christy Clark won, uh, thinking that um, this was going to be the NDP's to lose and, and Christy Clark won a, a majority government. Um, and I, I agree with you. And I love your analysis around kind of the role that the Conservatives are going to play. And, and 
we look at like I love looking at macro trends, just seeing like where are things going at a macro level. And at a macro level, the pendulum is swinging back to the right now. So we've had uh, a, a number of years, almost well over a decade at the federal level anyways, and at the provincial level where we've moved to the left. And now you're seeing, you know, the people like Pierre Poliev, who only a couple of years ago, people would have said, forget it. He's never going to have a chance of ever being the prime minister. We're, we're looking at a very realistic scenario where he could he could take over. And I can't help but think that in the next 12 months, as we go to the provincial election, as that tide kind of starts turning the NDP had better be very careful because if they wait too long for that election they could be at the at too far at the as the the swing of the pendulum starts coming back and a lot of things could fall into place that won't be in their favor yeah there's there's it, this is three-dimensional chess for sure Daniel and I don't think there's any question but that um, some of these key issues where people are people like David Eby, there's no question. I mean, he's at 42, 43, 44% in the polls. He's got a high approval rating. But when you look at individual issues, which are problematic and on top of mind for voters, I don't think that they, they all fall the NDP's way. And so um, I, you know, I have to admit, I'm mystified at the lack of action by the BC United Party and Kevin Falcon. I don't think they're playing a very good game at the moment. Um, but that may change, uh, and and it, it probably will as we get closer. Um, John Rustad, C and and uh, Bruce Bandman, the other Conservative MLA, seem to be playing to the, you know, fringy crowd, and I don't I don't get that either. But um, you know, there's you don't need to win forty percent of the vote for the BC Conservatives. If they can win twenty twenty five percent, they're going to be a force and have a, a lot of MLAs in the legislature. So it, there's a lot there's a lot of water to go under the bridge yet, and um, as I said, I don't think there will be an early election. I think the fact that the Premier's wife announced the NDP convention, the biggest news out of the NDP convention was that the Premier's wife, Kelly Lynch, is going to have their third child, and congratulations to them on that. I think that even more rules out a spring election, just a, a, a thought on my part. Um, but, uh, I, you know, uh, the flip side of this is, for the BC Conservatives, their best hope is that there isn't an early federal election. You don't want a peer poly of government starting to slash and burn stuff before you go to the BC electorate. And the 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 you know people kind of hedge their bets and go one way federal, one way provincial. So if Pierre Polyev continues to be popular, loads of voters in BC get confused over who the BC Conservatives are. The fact that they're not con at all connected to the federal Conservatives doesn't even uh, uh, doesn't even re register with them. So. No, it, it it absolutely does not, and I think that um, I I do think there's a there's a, a potential. I wouldn't want to lay bets on it that we could have a scenario where next fall we actually have both the federal and provincial election, which oh. I don't think is going to play into the provincial NDP's favor by having that happen. But um, again, that's why I think a, a lot of um, NDP folks that I've been talking to have been saying, you know, we could have it in the spring, go a bit earlier. Um, and not, you know, it's we can control when that timing as compared to the federal election, which, you know, could happen at that the, the drop of a hat. So interesting analysis. And, and I guess we'll we'll see it all um, unfold over the next uh, 12 months. Yeah, it's there's so many different pieces there. And a federal election is just another one. I, I have to think and I know we're at a, running out of time here. I have to think the federal NDP are going to cut the ties to liberals at some point as they see the Titanic going down and they've got a tow rope to their tugboat. I think they've got to cut that line sooner than 2025 and uh, and try and put some some daylight between them and, and Justin Trudeau. But we'll see. Yeah, no, that'll be uh, that'll be uh, speaking of trying to reposition yourself. That'll be interesting to see if Jagmeet and the NDP federally can can distance themselves, because I think that 
um, that from the public perspective, they've been so tied at the hip with the federal liberal um, government. It'll be hard for them to go on the doorsteps and say, um, we're offering an alternative to the to the Liberal government when they were there supporting it for the last three years. But great way to end that segment. So, Bill Tillman, uh, thank you for coming on the uh, broadcast, uh, the podcast today. Uh, it was uh, a real honor and privilege to be back uh, with you on the airwaves. I'd love to have you back again. Um, the great thing about having your own podcast is you control who your guests are, and I can assure you that you will get uh, re-invited. It's been a very stimulating conversation. I know that our listeners uh, appreciated getting your take and appreciate the the public service and the commitment you've uh, made to the community, and, and thank you for, for putting your name forward in the last civic election and being willing to... Uh, to like myself and so many other people uh, attend long public hearings. Well, I guess there still are public hearings, at least for now. Uh, but thank you so much, Bill, for for joining me on the on the uh, podcast today. My pleasure, Daniel. And I should have said earlier, but every Friday morning at ten o five on CKNW AM nine eighty, I am on with Mike Smith talking BC politics. I listen every week to Bill's beat, and it's a great segment. So I'll be sure to tune in uh, next week as well. So thanks so much, Bill. Thanks. All the best.